0: When undergraduate students look through a course catalog and see the title World Religions, they probably have some idea what the course will be about. But why is that? Why do world religions seem so self-evident in this historical moment? In After World Religions, Reconstructing Religious Studies, edited by Christopher Cotter and David Robertson, several authors attempt to delineate the history and engage with the problems of the world religions paradigm. The history of the production of the category Religion has defined the concept as a universal, sui generis entity. This system of classification was bound up in scientism, evolutionary thinking, colonial encounters, and Protestant biases. The world religions paradigm extends from this model and has governed both research and teaching in religious studies. The essays in After World Religions offer strategies to interrogate or subvert the world religions paradigm from within. How to approach introductory courses in the study of religion outside of this governing structure, and the role of emergent pedagogical techniques. In our conversation, we discuss the history of religion, textbooks as data, navigating graduate instruction, questions of the sacred, archaeological data, New Age stuff, critical thinking as opposed to the accumulation of information, the destabilizing effects of alternative data, the planet Pluto and another podcast, The Wonderful Religious Studies Project. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to this podcast, New Books in Religion. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Christopher Cotter and David Robertson about Afterworld Religions, Reconstructing Religious Studies, published with Rutledge in 2016.
1: Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Religion. How, How are you doing? Pretty good, thanks. Cheers for having us.
2: Yep, good to be here.
1: So uh, this book, After World Religions, uh, is a wonderful collection that uh, had an interesting kind of emergence uh, through the work you guys have done together for a long time and with uh, many colleagues. But perhaps we could start with uh, how you both got interested in the study of religion and then um, perhaps uh, more narrowly, how did your guys' uh, relationship develop uh, in the sense that uh you would work on this project okay
2: david do you want to kick off oh uh, sure i was always interested in uh strange beliefs which anybody who you know has read my other work on conspiracy theories will understand um and so i was kind of torn between religious studies and philosophy um but philosophy it turned out wasn't as interested in all the entertaining details that i liked um so i went for religious studies my interest in this kind of theory aspects of it, and we might call you know um, disciplinary formation and category formation, it came from um, being a student of Jim Cox and Steve Sutcliffe here at Edinburgh. Um, I imagine we'll come back to Jim uh, later on when we get more into this, uh, and into the conversation about the book. Um, but... Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I did all of my study here at Edinburgh um, right the way through uh, where I met uh, this young man, Christopher Cotter. (laughs) Indeed.
3: And um, well, I I actually initially went to university to do a degree in physics, um, which it turned out I absolutely hated. Um, (laughs) And people, when I say I then made the shift to religious studies, people go, oh, well, I suppose I can see the connection there ultimate questions and all that and then of course you have to (laughs) unpack everything and point out that i don't really do ultimate questions in religious studies um but yeah for me at that point it was going to be sociology psychology or religious studies and so um and yeah edinburgh and um again similar influences naturally coming from what is quite a small um but theoretically driven department at edinburgh and actually, uh, another name which will come up because she's also in the book um, is Carol Cusack, um, who's a professor in the study of religion at the University of Sydney, and um, she did a, a visiting semester um, over in Edinburgh. And uh, I think at that point, uh, David and I sort of made an impact on her as students, and she made an impact on us as a as a teacher. And um, so we ended up um, sort of becoming part of her professional network. Um, And this was when I was still an undergraduate. Um, And so David and I had been peripherally orbiting each other for uh, a little while. David was uh, a year ahead of me. Um, I knew him as the guy with the fantastic mustache and um, excellent (laughs) dress sense. And so we quickly realized that, oh, um, we're we're pals with Carol. And uh, we both were blogging at that point a little bit and um we just thought that we should maybe sit down and have a beer at some point since we we had a sort of we were in religious studies clearly both had decided that we wanted to um pursue a a career in this area and so carol was the, the reason that we eventually sat down to have a meeting and maybe david you can say how that meeting went
2: Well, um, yeah, you know, we hit it off and the rest is history, I guess. Um, (laughs) We, yeah, we we were talking about blogging, basically, and the fact that we didn't see many of our colleagues uh, kind of embracing these emergent sort of digital humanities ideas. Um, And we started talking about whether it would be worth doing, um, you know, some sort of blog project together. Um, Now, I, before I went to university, had a background in, in music. So I knew a bit about recording and I'd started listening to podcasts. And that idea came up and we started banging that back and forth. And at the time, we sort of said, oh, we should record some of these scholars that are coming to visit Edinburgh for the seminars series. You know, they come, we pay for them to come and they speak to maybe, you know, so 10 or 20 or 50 people at the very most, whereas if we recorded it and put it on the internet, you know, it would be there forever and hundreds of people could listen to it. Um, and that's kind of where the idea started and um, that idea grew into the Religious Studies Project quite quickly um, and by kind of... Um, I think we we decided we were going to do it by September... Is it tw- September 2012? No, September... 11. September 2011, and we recorded the first few interviews at the BASR uh, conference um, that September, and we started broadcasting um, in January 2012, and uh, you know that collaboration continues
1: to today. Yeah, and uh, it feels a little bit. Incestuous, almost, to <laughs> to have you guys on this podcast, <laughs> yeah. which uh, I started at the same time. I published my first one in September 2011, uh, but I remember right. uh, us kind of emerging at the same time and and kind of take taking different angles. But uh, I've always yeah. been a big fan of, of your guys' work, of course. Um, oh, like. Now, uh, this project uh, has kind of an interesting history because it, it did come out of that religious studies project, uh, kind of a, a few different um, kind of publications, if we can call it that, uh, from the religious studies project. So can you talk a little bit about how this project uh, came together? Uh, how did it develop from the podcast kind of embryonic form to the, the book length project?
3: Well, um, yeah, the the way the book came into emergence is quite a sort of study in digital humanities working well. So um, Jim Cox um, had the the honour of being, I think, the first uh, repeat interviewee on the um, Religious Studies Project, and David interviewed him about this notion of the world religions paradigm. And that that was all well and good. That went out. Um, And in the meantime steve sutcliffe had just mentioned oh you know there's not really any resource out there for you know what do you do if you're having to teach the world religions paradigm because it's so embedded in in public discourse it's so embedded in university structures and course structures and textbooks you know what strategies are there for actually uh, putting the the established critique which i'm sure we'll talk about in a moment um into practice and wouldn't it be great to to just hear some others thoughts on that and we we thought hmm well um we could ask some people about that and um we did what we we haven't done these so often but in in the early days we used to do compilation episodes where we'd ask a number of different scholars um so you know after the world religions paradigm you know what next what can we do and so we put that out as a sort of response to the, the main podcast and that, that was all well and good. And then um, I've popped um, a Facebook message uh, between uh, David, myself and Russ McCutcheon, um, who neither of us have ever met in what Jonathan Tuckett would call the meat world. (laughs) Um, We've only ever um, uh, interacted online and you know, Russell's a, a great networker for, Collecting people on Facebook and everything, so I, I can remember the day I got the Facebook request. You know, Russell McCutcheon's added
0: me on Facebook, <laughs>
3: um, and so th- this message came like, "Hey, I I co-edit um, this series called Religion and Culture with craig Martin, and uh, there might be a book project there. Um, would you be interested?" And and then you know, I don't know how long, how much longer. I think we say in the preface, but. Uh, it was maybe sort of a year and a half later the book emerged.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, we, we put it together quite quickly, actually. Um, I can't remember if that was just the pressure of, of other things coming up and um, probably just the, <laughs> the start of the academic year coming up as, as per now. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it kind of, once the idea had been um, mooted, it, the whole project kind of came together quite quickly. Um, although that was, you know, partly due to, I think, several of the people who ended up being involved in the book had already been involved in uh, one or other of the two podcasts there. So they kind of knew what the situation was going to be. And also, you know, we reached out to a lot of our um, our circle that we'd built up over a few years of doing the Religious Studies Project. Um, so we weren't dealing with um, unknown quantities, as it were. But yeah, once once the ball was rolling, it came together quite quickly.
1: Now, um, you you have a, a good deal of contributors here. I, I forget the exact amount, but it's about a dozen or uh, or more. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you selected some of these folks, um, kind of the logic behind it, and what you were hoping they would bring to the project?
2: Well, as I said, um, several of them were people who were involved in the various podcasts. So um, Jim Cox ended up doing the foreword, for instance, Who else was involved? Craig Martin was involved in in one of the podcasts. Um, Suzanne Owen. Suzanne Owen. Yeah, exactly. Beyond that, though, we knew we wanted to have certain things in it. In some cases, those were sort of topics or approaches. So we knew we wanted to have quite a strong focus on critical theory. um, And so we reached out to a few people like uh, Dimu Tara and some others um, who were working in that kind of area, uh, Paul Francois Tremlett as well. Um, other times there was specific people who we figured were important uh, to include, um, you know, people whose works had influenced us, for instance. Um, so we reached out to Tim Fitzgerald, for instance, at Sterling, then at Sterling. Um, he wasn't able to uh, contribute at the time, but he did end up. Um, uh, peer-reviewing the manuscript for us and made a number of suggestions, um, which were of a lot of use later on. Um, Russell McCutcheon, for instance, as well. We knew we kind of had to have him involved somewhere. Um, and we, you, we also wanted to have a focus on um, on teaching, on pedagogy. And so uh, we reached out to people like um, uh, Michel Desjardins, for instance, and uh, Dominic Corrie, right, in particular, um, has a strong uh, focus on on pedagogy and r s so we knew we wanted to have him involved um, and and that was that was it basically um once we'd, we we spent a lot of time between the two of us before we invited anyone um deciding the structure of it and deciding on these particular foci we were going to have um, you know working out this uh structure with the three different sections and thinking about what material we definitely needed to have and potential people we could invite. Um, so there wasn't a lot of, we didn't have to play around with material and edit it heavily after the fact because we'd spent that extra bit of time at the beginning getting the structure right, which I think was very beneficial.
1: Now, uh, the, the book does a lot of different things, but because of the kind of the breadth of the contributors. Um, but if you had to kind of summarize, what would you say is the overall goal of the book? Um, how do the uh, sections and the chapters work together? How, do, how did you set them up to complement each other?
3: Yeah. Well, one thing um, to say um, right from the beginning is that we we never set out for this to be like a sort of complete definitive um, book in a sense. Um, so, um, I mean, has I'm sure we'll get to this later, you know, there are some things that people have pointed out, oh, well, would have been great if you had that in there or that in there. And we we are definitely open to c- considering an Afterworld Religions too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, The Empire Strikes Back or something. That's actually quite a, an interesting... No, I, thought, I think we... Have we not decided on after Afterworld Religions? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, well, first off, in our... Our introduction what we aim to do was um provide you know we've over the years um been you know recipients of a lot of material on um the sort of emergence of um the study of religion as a discipline um the sort of victorian science of religion and then the the emergence of the notion that uh, there are a certain number of religions which are worthy of attention. They're the world religions. And then the critique um, of this paradigm so that it's bound up in power, that it reinforces a notion of religion sui generis, and that it basically it's modelled on Protestant Christianity. So we've been aware of a lot of this material. So we wanted in our introduction to... Um, Provide a succinct summary of the the um, processes by which the paradigm emerged, what the paradigm is, and indeed um, some of the critiques of it. Um, and then the the the, the way the structure works is that the, the first section we called subversive pedagogies. So it's the idea that um, sometimes through no fault of your own. Um, scholars are going to end up having to teach the world religions paradigm in some way as i said earlier um the way the public thinks about religion it's in terms of you know there's christianity buddhism islam etc um the way university departments are structured the way textbooks are structured students' expectations are going to be for the world religions paradigm and for a variety of reasons whether to do with lack of seniority or influence or you know, financial concerns. You you might end up having to teach that paradigm. So, how can you do that in um, a sort of more critically critically attuned way? Um, so, the chapters in that first section are, are, are for scholars who are written by scholars who are within a structure where they're having to teach the world religions paradigm in some way, and how you can do that, but also teach it critically. The second section then um maybe if you're in a bit more of a luxurious position um we called it alternative pedagogies. so um how can you um what other ways are there to teach that that introductory course that sort of religion 101 that students are going to want and universities will want taught um so um good chapters in there taking marxist approaches or discursive approaches um or teaching using using the notion of the, the sacred um, instead of religion and things like that, and then the final one um, we called innovative pedagogy. So that was you know a space for uh, scholars to provide uh, a bit more out of the box thinking. So uh, although you mightn't think of archaeology as an innovative pedagogy, but you know like using archaeology that that Carol Kusek does as a as a tool for teaching. But we've also got things in there on food um, on um, media new media and uh, and then dominic Coywright uh, really condensing a lot of his uh, life's work in, in teaching and learning into a, a a useful chapter with some excellent examples but the, the idea for the whole book really was to provide uh, a resource uh, for scholars who are engaged in teaching against this pervasive world religions paradigm so some chapters have um very useful um uh pedagogical techniques and class exercises and things and others are are um you know more reflective and more inspirational um, that would be my take on it
2: that second section um is is more intended to focus on theoretical models so what theoretical models can you use to teach um in a different way without relying on on the world religions paradigm and it's the various assumptions that it smuggles in whereas the third one is more focused on the classroom you know what are the teaching techniques you can use uh, to do it in a different way so that that's another um difference between those two sections but as chris says you know the the focus on practical teaching examples runs all the way through the book and i think most of the chapters have um, you know, these in-practice sections yeah. where uh, actual real-life examples that you can apply to the classroom are included. And I, I actually have used some of the ideas in the book in the classroom um, since writing it, which is, is great, because that's what I wanted the book to do. I, um, I didn't expect that I'd actually be using it myself, but there you go. <laughs>
1: Uh, Yeah, you guys do a good job, and uh, I don't know if that was kind of naturally coming out of the the individual authors or if that was something you kind of uh, highlighted in in what you – Desired from their their product but uh it, it, well. we, we
2: definitely asked them we asked them specifically to include that and um very often when we returned the you know we looked over the draft and returned them that was something that we wanted them to highlight um it, it's different in different cases i mean some are much more obviously built on that kind of idea so for instance steve Sutcliffe's chapter is built entirely on his syllabus so there's a lot of detail there mm-hmm. um and uh, michael De, uh, Jardin again is you know it 's based very much in a course, but there are other ones which are based much more on theoretical ideas, but even then we still ask them for one or two practical examples
1: yeah I think it 's a good example of uh, kind of demonstrating how our research can be uh, kind of implemented in the classroom so um, yeah so that was
2: an important that was an important aspect of the book i mean we 're not contributing a great deal to the critique of, of the world religion's paradigm or this particular sort of sui generis model of religion that's so dominant in the in the academy. The thing that we offer that hasn't really been done um, and, you know, there's still more of it to do, but this is meant to be a first salvo in actually aligning this kind of critical and post theory with the classroom, you know, making hmm. it practical, which is it's the, the, really the next big hurdle that critical theory has to, um, to overcome before uh, we can actually revolutionize the classroom and reconstruct religious studies is we need to think about how we can teach with this stuff how can how can we go from uh, the ground you know somebody walking into the classroom and start critical theory there rather than teaching them these outdated victorian theological assumptions and then trying to undermine that when they get to postgraduate exactly and just uh,
3: another point I'd, I'd want to highlight is that although a lot of our contributors were writing as people who are in the position of writing the course, as it were. Um, another chapter that we haven't yet mentioned is, is one by um, Tara baldrick Morone, Michael Graziano and Brad Stoddard, who at the time were writing as graduate teaching assistants in the U S and um, writing about how, you know, so even from that at that stage um, you may be, forced to be teaching in the classroom someone else's material that is not as critically engaged as you would want it to be. And so that they, they offer, you know, a, an added dimension there of how can, even if you're not in a position to be making any choices about the content at all, um, what can you do in that classroom situation?
2: That ended up being one of my favourite chapters in the book, actually. I mean, that, that one came from Russell. They'd um, all presented papers at a conference. I'm not sure if it was the AAR or it was, what it was. It was
3: Nasser, I think.
2: Yeah. It was a Nasser, yeah. Um, and he suggested that we get in contact. And actually, Chris and I were both in that position at the time we were editing the book. You know, uh, we were doing um, what they call tutorials here, um, where we were basically um, doing the face-to-face teaching following the you know somebody else's course and somebody else's lectures, um, and that chapter condenses a lot of very practical ideas um, and ideas that I've used and was already using um, into um, one chapter. So I was very pleased with that
1: one. Now, we're 20 minutes or so into, into the conversation, and some people, uh, some listeners might not know the kind of background but behind uh, the critique of the category of religion that you guys have been talking about, what exactly this world religions paradigm is. Um, can, you, can you walk us th- through this? What What is the problem with the category of religion? Uh, maybe um, kind of some of mm-hmm. the essential features of, of the history of its production and then how it relates to uh, this world religions paradigm. What, what is that? <laughs>
3: well, the, the first thing um, to put on the table then would be um, that, as David said, um, that critique, it, it's not ours in a sense. Uh, if, if listeners want to delve into that, the work of uh, Russell McCutcheon, Timothy Fitzgerald, um, Tomoko Masawa, Brent Nongri, David, David Chidester. yeah, um, um, Richard King. Um, that you know, go and check out and um, their 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 big works, which are all um, listed um, and referred to throughout the book. Um, so, um, what is the problem with uh, the word religion and uh, with the world religions paradigm? Um, we've got how many minutes? <laughs> <laughs> um well um first of all um uh, Timothy Fitzgerald does a, a great job in his book um Discourse on Civility and Barbarity in Tracing uh, and also sorry we didn't mention Jonathan Z Smith there either <laughs> yeah, of, course, um, yeah. this, of tracing the emergence of this use of the word religion and although it may seem like quite a natural category to us it's only really around the enlightenment that the word starts to to come into major use in, in the english language or in in related languages and his argument is that it's basically referring to the true religion to protestant christian truth and so what we had was um you know, we had we and the Europeans, we have religion, and uh, everyone else, everyone else doesn't with superstitions and whatnot. And that, that's so the words bound up in that uh, Christian usage. Brent Nongreed takes the you know, charts the term right back to Latin Greek, um, um, but it, it's really around the Enlightenment that it starts to be applied um, to. First of all, this notion of Christian truth, but then we start to have the colonial encounter. And um and then suddenly, do these people that we are encountering do they have religion, or do they not quite often no they don't um they they you know, there is no religion here, but then things start to emerge and 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 the notion of well what what do they have these strange others that seems to be analogous to to what we have uh, and so then we get this notion of religions developing also bound up in this as well is the the secular um, which again uh, as a as a separate notion didn't really exist until enlightenment times um it, it used to be a, a sort of a word that was used uh, you know in, in monastic circles you were if you were working if you were a, a secular the secular domain was sort of the domain of this world and uh, and the religious was the uh, the true world the the real and the secular was this sort of domain Fitzgerald um, then also charts how this emergence of the notion of the secular so secular rationality the the political space as being secular and free from religion then produces this binary whereby um, we are rational and we are in a position to parcel off everyone else's beliefs into these little religious silos. I'm, I'm wittering on there, David. Um, do you want to rescue me?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, so we've got um, you know what, it's there's three kind of factors. So the colonial aspect is is important. Um, but you've also got the theological context. So a lot of the early colonial period, you've got, uh, it's missionaries who are out there. And that situation is actually much more complex uh, than it's often realised. I mean, you have situations, for instance, when talking about Africa, where the scientific community was arguing that uh, you know Africans weren't human; um, they were you know a higher form of ape or something. Um, whereas it was actually the the uh, the missionaries who were arguing the case that they were humans because they needed them to be humans so that they could be converted and saved, for instance. Um, but also. The Even people who weren't missionaries, early explorers, were um, imbued in, in Protestant theology, and that's what they saw. They saw everything in terms of, of uh, the terms and words that they were used to, which was Protestant theology. Also, of course, there was the third factor, which is the scientific. Um, the Victorian era, by the middle of the Victorian era, um, the colonial project is seen very much part and parcel with the Victorian scientific urge. So they were trying to um, uncover the last few missing pieces of knowledge of the world. Um, and part of that scientific project was classification and categorization. So in the way that Darwin attempted to classify all the branches of of um, animals and plants and the way that Linnaeus uh, categorized um, botanically. Um, people like Max Müller and Cornelius Thiele, their descriptions of religion, um, which come right at the birth of the study of religion, um, are attempts to to classify... Um, the religions of the world um, in a similar way to Linnaeus or Darwin. Um, So they're applying uh, evolutionary model to the idea of religion and they're classifying them um, in different ways. Max Muller saw um, religion is emerging as a perfect, uh, kind of a perfect thing and declining. So it was devolving away from an original perfect hierophany. Whereas uh, Tila saw kind of primal religions evolving slowly into more and more rarefied and perfect examples of religion. Tellingly, both Müller and Tila saw Christianity as the paragon of religion, um, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, but in both cases, they're using contemporary scientific models, uh, Darwinism, and uh, assuming the primacy of Christianity, their own context, of course, mm-hmm. um, and then classifying as Linnaeus or Darwin the remaining religions according to a schema, which they just naturally assumed would be the same as their own uh, protestant context so looking for texts for buildings for priests for uh you know piety and messages of salvation
3: yeah yeah so so that's the sort of uh that's the historical context but when when we talk about the world religions paradigm you know now people maybe won't necessarily think of it in such evolutionary terms but it's just so self-evident isn't it that there are there are at least five, right? You've got your Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, and Hinduism. Um, maybe there's a sixth one. You know, that could be Sikhism. It could be Taoism if you're Jack Miles and the Norton Anthology of World Religion. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, what, what actually are the criteria for these being world religions, right? Well, it's, it's not adherence, is it? Because, well, you know, if you're going by numbers, why is Judaism... Um, included up there with with the others, um, it, it's not it's not texts, is it? You know, because well, well, it can be because people go, well, Hinduism does have texts, right? You know, there's there's a scripture there, but but does it really? Is it belief in God? Well, do you know, what, what happens with Buddhism there? Uh, so e- even just presented with those five or six, you can already start to to pick away at problems. Why is it just those? Um, but as I mentioned earlier, and I'll expand on now, like the the three main problems that we identified in 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 all of this critique um, are that first of all, the key criterion seems to be that it, it's things which looked most like Protestant Christianity. Um, so that the model of what is a religion, when you in this paradigm and you break it down, it, it seems to be basically well these things are christian like so that they they can also be considered alongside but there's also issues there's a whole mm. rank of um, issues to do with power there you know because if we do construct say hinduism along the lines of um, christianity with its scriptures and everything then, then what's that what's that doing to the to the religion in quotation marks of uh People in, in, in villages in India, you know, um, it, it's, that's privileging a certain very elite form. Um, uh, what about women? <laughs> you know, women aren't really included in in any of this at all. So there's huge issues surrounding power. But then also um, it, it brings in um, Russ McCutcheon's um, important critique of um, the sort of sui generis notion of religion. Um, so the, the idea that the world, that the whole world's population can be divided up into sort of these five or six categories uh, presumes that there is something called religion out there that exists in some way prior to our to our classification and that it's just manifesting in these different ways.
1: That's great. Thanks, guys. And uh, so this uh, obviously structures both uh, much of what we do in our research within religious studies, um, but, uh, you know, in relation to your book, most uh, specifically in relation to teaching. And you mentioned... In your introduction, a couple of ways that uh, others have tried to, I guess, disrupt the world religions paradigm uh, that you see a little problematic. So um, you you mentioned that sometimes people try to expand the model. Well, let's include this or that and make it more world religions. (laughs) Others look at this idea of lived religions. What exactly (laughs) is that? Um, And then uh, more recently, there's been this kind of push towards material religion. Can you talk a little bit about – what you and and some of your uh, authors in the in the volume see as kind of the uh, limitations of these uh, attempts to uh, kind of disrupt the world religions paradigm? The
2: Well, Steve Sutcliffe in his chapter talks about, um, you know, rearranging the chairs and the deck chair in terms of um, putting, well, Chris mentioned the sort of sixth category you quite often get, um, and th- this has also been, you know, it's often indigenous religions. Sometimes you get new and alternative religions. And a lot of times you get... uh in textbooks, for instance, you'll start off with a chapter which says, oh, you know, religion on the ground is much more complex, whatever. And then they basically have the world religions paradigm plus a couple of smaller chapters later on on um, African religions or indi- well, African religion, singularly, um, or indigenous religion, um, or s- very occasionally sort of new alternative religions. Um, and th- this is... Uh, from a theoretical point of view, the problem is that by shaping other traditions into this Western model, this model inherited from, um, from Eliade, uh, no, well, from Eliade, but that's not what I meant, uh, by Tila and Muller and these other um, theologically tinged Victorians, um, we're essentially uh, perpetuating that category so rather than looking at the problems of the category and thinking of different ways of doing it we're forcing everything into this category and actually reinforcing the primacy of that category we're essentially making the natives behave like the conquerors if they want to sit down at the table and we found that kind of um, problematic but there's there's a nice example actually in steve's chapter and this is one that that um i've got particular problems with given my kind of specialization in new religions and it goes back to what chris was saying a second ago about power um, and who's allowed to have a place at the table now if you allow uh say we allow african religion and for instance very um popular a lot of people would like to do that um And yet we ignore, say, the kind of New Age alternative religious milieu. Now, in terms of numbers in the West, uh, new religions um, and certainly the sort of non-institutionalized kind of New Age milieu has a much broader reach in society than, say, Judaism does. But um, this points to the kind of uh, theological uh, idea and the power imbalance that's very seldom given a place at the table, um, largely because um, it doesn't have the same post-colonial kind of concern that um, that including, say, African or Indigenous religions does. Um, So, you don't solve problem you don't solve the problem by making the the number of of world religions lar- larger you just entrench it further as and at the same time show kind of how uh how ridiculous and arbitrary that um system of categorization is in the first place if you you know if you end up you can't possibly include everything because then you you're not taking the big ones fairly and it just it, the whole thing breaks down eventually hmm yeah so uh, yeah
3: you end up it's as futile an exercise as rearranging the deck chairs on the titanic it's going down anyway you know it doesn't matter how many deck chairs there are yeah Um, because
2: of, of course the minorities that you choose to include in the categorization has as much to do with power as those that you choose to exclude it's just it's just a different variety of it
3: so yes the another approach which is which is very common right now and for for good reason is the sort of lived religions approach so to to get away from these sort of textbook understandings of you know islam is the five pillars and 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 such and such and look at how people you know how people who identify as muslim for example how they how that manifests in various different contexts and so this has a great appeal because rather than say studying or presenting islam christianity buddhism as, as bounded entities you're rather talking about you know islam's Christianities, buddhisms and so on looking at all the um all the regional variation um but the problem there becomes if you're still if you're teaching a 10 a week sort of world religions introductory course um how much of that variation can you actually get in especially if you've got students who um are, are starting at university for the first time they, they you can't assume any base knowledge so you can present them with a a, a selection you know you're still going to probably have to choose uh, two or three manifestations of of each of these world religions right um but you're still going to be engaging in an exercise of uh, of selection there well, uh, david and i have I've had ex- experience of this firsthand whereas um there's a there's a danger first of all that that these um specific case studies that have been picked out become cemented in the students' minds as being just as reified as the world religions them, themselves so people you know um, for instance at edinburgh uh, when there's a big emphasis on in the Judaism section on on food, so there's a lot of stuff about uh, delicatessens and uh, all the various festivals. But then, then, so the student, the students come out thinking, "Oh, Jews eat food," and that's kind of, <laughs> and, and they eat more food than other world religions do. Uh, no, that wasn't the point. The point was
2: to try and destabilize the category. Well, the um, number of essays we marked I had, you know, something like "food's very important to Jews."
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but and more insidiously, then it also because of the nature of a, a first-year introductory course. If you if you throw at students a lot of variation and just go, look. And um, this could be Islam. This could be Islam. This could be Islam. This could be Islam. The, the sort of the the lesson that a lot of students come away with is that well, anything goes, right? And um, it, it becomes so individualized that you know, well, as long as one person says that it is, then it obviously is, and then it doesn't take into account all of the other things, the the tradition, the scripture, the ritual, all of those important elements of the world religions paradigm. Um, that are actually part of the construct that we call religion um, end up sort of getting pushed to the side and they sort of laissez-faire. Well, you know, it, it's all it's all just whatever. Everyone's just charting their own course and, and they come away. Um, you're like, I, d- I don't really know what you've got from this course. <laughs> so that's That's a, a problem with the lived religions approach in a first year introductory course.
2: There's also, though, a, a, a theoretical issue, and, and this goes right the way back to the sui generis idea, is when you've got lived religion and you're saying, well, it's not about these uh, traditions and institutions, it's about what people do on the ground, it very easily shades into how they experience the religious ineffable for themselves, right? And you're back to this situation where you have... Um, this essential core to being religious. And people will say things like, you know, this u- uniquely human experience. Except, of course, we can't in the academy talk about people's individual, uh, you know, experiences or the, if the are ineffable. Um, so we're back to this kind of theological sui generis position where we're looking at how re- this thing called religion, this timeless uh, universal essence manifests itself in everyday life. And this is also a problem with the material religion approach. Um, it's quite ironic that the material religion approach started off um, specifically with the agenda of avoiding kind of um, religious essentialism and focusing on texts and so on and so forth. Because in practice, it's very often slid from, look, the only thing we can look at is these material things that people use in concrete ways into, oh, look, here's how the sacred manifests in this object. Here's how somebody's inner faith is expressed in practice. And we're once again back to... Sui generis essentialism—the um, very same kind of tradition of religion which emerges with Müller um, with uh, Mueller and Tila and then goes through Eliada, through Ninian Smart and into modern religious studies. This, um, you know, quasi theological assumption at the heart of all of this of of mm. this, this this phenomenological tradition of there being this essential experiential universal core to religion mm. um, and that's the thing that we have that, that in teaching we've never managed to challenge really
0: mm.
1: and
2: and with
3: all of this um we don't want to be seeming too uh, you know like like right let's just get rid of it you know because um for example
2: burn it down burn it all down
3: <laughs> in um you know, in chemistry, for example, my, my wife's a chemist and, and you, you learn that, you know, the that atoms are composed of, um, you know, they've got so many electrons orbiting a nucleus or something. And, and you draw these diagrams and then, you know, you, you advance another couple of years in school and you get told, oh, by the way, that that's just not the way it works at all. Um, here's how it actually works. And it, there's a sort of incremental um, learning. And in some senses, you know, maybe the world religions paradigm does act as a, a useful roadmap, you know, getting people from A to B and, you know, accepting that there are all there are different traditions and that they they should be respected and on, on the same. You know, if you're going to respect one, you should respect others and, and all that sort of thing. And as many of our contributors do, and particularly I'm thinking here of Stephen Ramey's chapter um you can utilize um, world religions, textbooks, and whatnot um, at, subversively uh, as as a way of showing, you know, well, this is being presented as fact, And uh, but if we look at these two different authors and we see their factual descriptions here, how do they differ? Why might they differ? What are the interests being served? So, you know, it's not that... Um, the world religion paradigm has no place at all in the classroom. Um, the problem is, is these sort of throwing it at students um, before they have the critical apparatus to, to um, see it contextual and constructed um, nature.
1: That's great. Um, so uh, of course we don't have time to go through each chapter, but um, what, what would you say are some of the kind of uh threads that run through the various uh, approaches to disrupting this that, that your authors provide. And, and we've mentioned many of them, uh, but but perhaps we can flesh out a few more.
2: Um, well, one, one chapter which which always um, sticks in my mind is uh, Michel Desjardins' chapter. Um, he teaches uh, his introduction to religious studies by looking at food. Uh, specifically, um, f- kind of food practices, and Jews uh, like food.
0: Well, <laughs> Jews do like
2: food, yeah. Um, but it's it's a very good way of um, there's actually there's a few chapters, uh, Dave McConaughey's chapter as well, um, of you know looking at something that isn't ostensibly religion. Um, in the introductory class as a different way into looking at practices um, that, you know, different communities and cultures have. Um, uh, both chapters are excellent. Uh, Michelle's is written in a very readable and good humoured way with a lot of detail about his class, which I find uh very interesting, but these kind of uh, this idea of you know starting in a different place don 't feel the need necessarily to start with all of these guys do this and all of these guys do this and um, instead looking at one kind of uh, relatively everyday practice or you know something that the students would not have theorized through this kind of lens before it gets them thinking about it in a different way it lets them approach. From a different angle that doesn't mean that their preconceptions and their you know statements of identity are as near the surface if you like um, and can cause them to you know to to start to critique in a different in you know in a more effective manner than they would be by starting with these um, monolithic religious identities and religious traditions that they've grown up with using in a very you know using in a very folk popular way um and that runs right the way through so we've got you know um even the, using the archaeology or the terminology of the sacred uh, or you know there's a, there's a number of chapters that deal with that
3: yeah and um one that i i would like to highlight would be um in craig martin's chapter um one of he talks about a, a number of courses but one is a course called the evolution of jesus um, if i remember correctly um which is not only a so that's an immediately provocative title it's probably going to get you higher student numbers it's got the word evolution and jesus in it <laughs> um, but what he's doing in that course is um he, so he's teaching um the material so the the sort of the data which i guess is is new testament and the the figure of jesus but rather than teaching it um in a sort of uh he, here's how it is here's a bunch of facts he has, each week he takes um, different construct historical constructions of Jesus so how how have people in different um, contexts um, viewed um, the the figure of Jesus so whether that you know you can have your your communist Jesus you can have Nazi Jesus you can have a revolutionary Jesus conformist Jesus and and, and sort of taking and um, different weeks um these different approaches so the students are not only getting the um they're not only getting the the basics that they would expect to get from a course on the historical question mark jesus but they're also getting um, an introduction to how um the same set of data that is ostensibly quote fact unquote can be interpreted and presented in uh, multi various different ways and utilized to serve um a variety of agendas Um, and then you know through that here comes the whole critique of of world religions paradigm and everything else you know and and that would be one of the lessons that you would hope students would get out of any course that you're teaching is that there's there's an agenda involved in the selection of material and and although there may be a set you know everyone may be perceiving the, the 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 same Set of events, or the same, you know, hearing the same statements. Um, there then there's interpretation and presentation that happens on top of that. Um, so that's another one of the the key threads throughout the book. I would say, um, that notion of um, there's always uh selection and translation in, in teaching in textbooks in, in anything.
2: It's it's making that selection. Um obvious and open and basically telling the students, you know, the material here has been selected. Mm. um, But there are other ways that we could organise the same data. We've mentioned Yeah, Dominic Corey writes chapter. We mentioned that before, and there's an exercise in there that I've used a few times. Um, I use it in the very first tutorial of the course where I give the students a pile of cards which have the names of different religious traditions on it, you know, some of the major ones, some lesser known ones, some that will bother them like, you know, atheism or communism or sport or whatever. And I ask them to organize them. in in small groups and then after we've done that I'll go around and I'll ask them to explain the rubric that they organise them under and you know they'll do it in different ways some will organise them into sort of groups of similar kind of traditions other ones will organise them historically um, you know or or various ways Um, but that gets them from the off before we even get to any of the substantive kind of weeks they're already going well none of this is Fits perfectly, but this scheme that they're using is one of a number of ways we could organise these things, um, and it just helps to to make that plain from the outset.
3: Two other contributors who we haven't really mentioned specifically in the context of the book are, are James Cox and Russell McCutcheon. So uh, James Cox was the, in many ways, the inspiration for the the, the book happening in the first place. So he provides a foreword where he actually um, he looks at the work of. Um, Wilfred Campbell Smith, who um many of us might looking back now see as part of the part of the problem <laughs> with the world religions paradigm uh, but Cox does a, a great job of, of showing how some of this um the seeds of this critique are are in um Campbell Smith's work and how we should maybe you know maybe reassess his his work in the light of this critique um and then Russell ends the book um. Uh, in in his inimitable style by talking for a lengthy period about um the planet pluto <laughs> and how well i've just used the term planet there of course is it a planet or is it not you know he, he takes us through the um set of historical and political circumstances that led to pluto being declassified as a planet and then you know of course brings your attention right back to well we see all of this sort of um political maneuvering and interests being served um, similarly within the academic study of religion and the world religions paradigm and 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 indeed um even within the pages of the book itself because (laughs) this this kind of critique is hard and it's hard to be consistent and it's hard to to not slip back into to using um um, terminology that is problematic, and, and it, it's good to constantly have that critical eye being cast. So, um, yes, it's worth remembering those two. And mm-hmm. um, we presented on this uh, at in in Erfurt at the um, Iehr Congress, and, and we were very we were delighted to have Tomoko Masazawa chair the session, and we had um, some of the contributors to the volume, and a, and, a, and Jim Cox was in the room, and at, and at the end of the. the the four papers and my paper was a bit more of an overview of the book. He put up his hand and he was like, um, um, I I noticed that you didn't mention my paper, (laughs) Jim. I've rectified that now.
1: Great. Uh, well that, that might be a good spot to, uh, end our discussion of the book. Um, I, I would recommend, uh, listeners, uh, grab a copy and check it out. I think, uh, while it's not the uh, the end of the conversation, it's certainly a very good uh, opener. So, um, But before I let you go, uh, we'd love to hear about the things that you guys are working on now or projects you might have uh, kind of in the pipeline.
3: Um, well, I am just about to start. Um, I've got a, a, a three-year research fellowship at Edinburgh um where I'm going to be, so my work has been um, in this problematic area of uh, the non religious atheism, humanism, religious indifference, um, which, you know, in many ways could have made it into that book. You know, is it is it an eighth or seventh or eighth world religion? I don't know. Um, so I, I, I critically engage with those categories, um, but also um, do um, empirical study and. Um, my context is going to be doing a comparative study of uh, of Scotland and Northern Ireland, um, which are um, two peripheral contexts in terms of the the UK, but um, which also have quite politicised religious identities. I'm sure if anyone's familiar with uh, Northern Ireland, they'll, they'll know that the, that category is highly politicised. So, I want to. I'm doing a comparative study to see how. How um well I've used the term unbelief, which is a horribly problematic word, but I'll deconstruct that too. How it manifests itself in these um contexts, how do people relate to that dominant category of religion um and 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 its sort of politicized nature. So that that's what I'm doing. And and we, um David and I are also uh co authoring a chapter for a book that um you're co editing on uh the digital humanities, um, so listeners should be able to to read that fairly soon um,
2: about the religious studies project. Yes, indeed. Glad you mentioned that. I was I was going to try and remember to mention that one. Um, I'm uh, just starting. Uh, I've just finished co-editing with um, Asbjorn Direndal, and Egil Asprim the Brill Handbook of Religion and Conspiracy, uh, which is a huge, sort of six or seven hundred page uh, edited volume. Um, which we've been working on for the last couple of years, and we've just handed that in. So hopefully that'll be out beginning of next year. Um, And in the meantime, I've started on what I intend to be my second monograph, which is going to be called Elite Knowledge um, and is about the history of the construction of Gnosticism. As a as an academic category, as a, a, a sui generis category of, of religious experience and its influence, both on the on the academy and on practitioners. So it's it's a case study on on the etic and emic negotiation of categories, um, as well as hopefully the first book to look at contemporary Gnosticism um, on its own terms without having to explain it as a continuation of ancient Gnosticism or as part of the New Age milieu, but just as as a, a thing in its own right. After all, Gnostics today may be the only people who have ever self-identified as Gnostics in history, so we ought to take them seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that will continue the interest in category formation and uh, and terms and sui generis from, from after-world religions. So, I'm I'm enjoying
1: writing again. Great. Well, good luck, gentlemen, and uh, maybe we'll have you back to talk about one of those projects.
2: (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, Thanks, Christian. Be be a pleasure. Thanks, Christian.
0: That was my conversation with Christopher Cotter and David Robertson, editors of Afterworld Religions, Reconstructing Religious Studies, published with Rutledge in 2016. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.